When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello everybody, ho ho ho, happy Christmas, it's the Cricket Badger Christmas Special, when we look back across a year of Cricket Badger podcasts, I've churned out quite a few this year, lockdown, Covid, giving me plenty of time on my hands, it's also meant a lot of my victims, sorry, interviewees, have been more than free to chat on the Cricket Badger podcast. So many this year, I have quite honestly lost count. We've done the IPL daily podcast as well and the Big Bash daily podcasts and we're approaching 300 editions. But this Christmas special, it's given me the chance to look back across the year of 2020 and remember some of the great chats I've had with some terrific guests. This is by no means an exhaustive list of Cricket Badger interviewees. I thank each and every one of them for coming on in the year 2020. But what you're going to hear on this Cricket Badger Christmas special is my favourite interviews and some clips from them as we relive a year that's been pretty nasty, hasn't it? We've had COVID-19, we've had lockdowns, and we've been denied cricket for big chunks of the summer. It's been a bit of a struggle this year, hasn't it? I'm sure some of you have lost people as well because of COVID-19. Thoughts are with you. Have a very happy Christmas and uh, sit back, kick back and enjoy uh, a bit of a trip down memory lane as we go through some of my favourite bits of the Cricket Badger podcast of this year. You'll know if you've listened to the Cricket Badger podcast a few times, when I do the interviews, I tend to do a 20 questions. And one of the questions I ask players is what was the best moment of their cricket careers? I'll give you one guess what the Ashington Express, Mark Wood, when he joined me in June 2020, answered to that question. It's that Badger style. got a little wager with myself. I know what this answer is going to be, but you might surprise me. But what's been your best well, moment think, in cricket? I think you, should, I think you should, should answer it and I'll tell you if you're right or not. Well, I, I can only imagine it's the World Cup final. Uh, that, well, that, it's got to be, hasn't it? It has to be, be yeah. I mean, I, I, I was watching that video the other day. You know, the the ICC did that cracking little video of the final, all the drama, all the tension and everything. Yeah. And there's that little bit where, because you're not actually out there in the Super Over and you're on the edge no. of the pitch and they picture you just looking yeah. around nervously with your wide eyes. That must have been yeah. absolute torture not to be involved in that Super Over. Oh, I hate it, I hate it. Um, you can't influence it, can you, at that point? Yeah, you, when you're off the field, I mean, I told my side, and although I went off the field whilst it was obviously the first end of the game, um, I came out and batted. I made it worse when I dived in to, to, to try and make the second run with Stokesy. And I just couldn't throw the ball, basically. So I would have been absolutely no use to anybody. I mean, I would have tried to throw it. But I'm not sure how powerful it would have been or how accurate with my side um, being torn pretty badly. So I don't know. It was awful. <laughs> um, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy I mean, there's aspects of the final, I think. How good was that when I look back? And then there's other bits of it, I think, that I, I hated that game. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy it, and um, the tension, the, the nervousness. But obviously, 
obviously when you get the end result, it just makes it all worthwhile and euphoric. And um, I still as the proudest day ever. And like I said, yeah, I never thought I'd play one game for England. I'm a bit like you. I'm just a normal bloke, a lad that grew up playing club cricket, grew up down the lane from his local club, and yeah. I'm just a normal lad that's been lucky enough to play for England. So the you know, be involved with 11 people to win the World Cup the first time the countries do it. I feel so proud of that. It's by far the best yeah. thing that's happened in my career. It's almost like you've got a different name now, isn't it? Because you're going to be introduced now for the rest of your life as World Cup winner, Mark Wood, or, or Mark Wood World Cup winner. It, that's never going to leave you, is it? You, you, that, nobody can ever take that away from you. I know, and that's the thing that um, first hit me, really, because, you know, after after the, the final, we watched videos of, of people jumping around the country and, celebrating on some great videos of the Royal Cricket Clubs and people's houses and uh, Trafalgar Square, things like that. Fantastic videos. The thing that really, when it really something for me was um, I got a lovely award at Ashington, um, like a Citizens Award. I think only Bobby and Jackie Charlton had that award as well. So it was a, it was a nice um, thing to be awarded and I was actually introduced as Mark Wood World Cup winner and I think that was the first time it really hit me to think, you know, like I'm not Mark Wood Durham England cricketer, Mark Wood World Cup winner it was great to hear those words. Sky did some cracking little uh, kind of recaps um, over the winter and I think it rained quite a bit in one of the test matches in New Zealand. So I, w- I watched you your interview for that quite a few times and you, you talk about going out to join Ben Stokes and, and you think, well, I'm not going to face a ball, so why have I got all my thigh pads and everything on and, and everything like that? But you only think about things like that looking back at matches, don't you? I mean, I, I guess everybody listening yeah. to this has probably got examples of that in their own life, but not in a World Cup final. Yeah, I think it was just panic, I guess. There's nothing that in... Nothing else I can really put on my mind. I mean, you're so clouded, and you know, the, you, people will know the same feeling when you know you've got a million things on your mind and you, you overthink it, or you, you, you're, you're totally somewhere else. And that's what I was. I wasn't thinking about, you know, I don't need all this stuff. I was thinking, I'm going to have to run as fast as I can. Uh, there's one ball left. Come on, gear yourself up for that. So, um, and as well, a bit that comes before it is I'm thinking I might have to back. It's not just I'm thinking, oh, I'm just going to have to run. Yeah. For an over and a half, I'm thinking, once I've got to you know, go out there and hit the winning runs, where am I going to hit it? What's he bowling? What's he trying to bowl? Um, if Stokes gets out, it's me and Rash, so what are we going to do? If Rash gets out, do I just knock it for Stokes? And is he going to try and win it? So there's literally, at the most pressured times, there's a million things running through your head. And that was just one of the things I've forgotten. It's daft now, and looking back, I wish I had um, took it off, because it might have helped. But um, yeah, it, it all turned out. All right, in the end, didn't it? So it came out in the wash, didn't it? It was, it was, it was fine in the end. I mean, take take you back to that moment where Josh Butler whips the bales off, and you're on the boundary edge. What goes through yeah. your head there? Do you, do you actually just um, think I'm a World Cup winner now, or just just your head just go empty? And you, how what happens? Because I mean, we all had that watching it mm. as a player involved in that. What goes through your head at that moment? You're just in the moment, I guess. Um, I mean, I was halfway over the barrier as he as he collected the ball because you could sort of see. I mean, you get a perception in, in even club games when you can see that it's going to be out. And I knew it was going to be out as long as Joss uh, whipped the stumps off. So I was halfway sort of jumping over the barrier. And then when he hit the stumps and, you know, his reaction, I mean, I, I think it's out, but then you, you totally know by Joss's reaction that yeah. he's got it. And um, I mean, uh, Morgie described it best when he said that it's like running down a hill. And that's exactly what it's like. So imagine as a kid, you run down a hill, your legs are going that fast that you cannot stop. You don't want to stop. You just want to keep like running and, and jumping and um, as sort of people. It's one of them where you get in like a, a, a group huddle kind of thing because you're all jumping on each other, but you can't hear a thing. So it's just like ah, 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 just like muffled noise because everybody's 
screaming and shouting and nobody actually says anything. It's just sort of just pure emotion. It's just brilliant. Um, I mean, Liam Plunkett's the biggest guy in my team. He's floods of tears. Stokes, he had tears in his eyes. I mean, these are the hardest, biggest, toughest lads we've got. And yeah, to see the emotion part of them was, was, was special. I remember Chris Walks lifting me up and sort of like walking me across the field. Um, I don't even think we said anything. We just, we just like look at each other like in disbelief like we've actually done it um, and I think you know it was a, a long hard road to get there from 2015 when we started plus a long hard road in the competition you know it wasn't just yeah. four years it was it was pretty rough during the World Cup as well but to be able to say we've done it in the end was you know I still can't believe we've, we've done it a great deal In May, I spoke to a player I've never spoken to before, but one I've had massive admiration for. Jack Russell, just behind Alan Knott for me, is the greatest wicketkeeper of all time. I was a little bit nervous when I spoke to Jack. I'm not usually that nervous on the Cricket Badger podcast interviews, but I've got massive respect for him. There's a lot about him. Quite quirky, quite eccentric. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but he was an absolute diamond. I always think when I look at your pictures of you with that sun hat on, which you had for throughout your career, didn't you? It reminds me of that episode of Only Fools and Horses with Trigger and his sweeping brush, where he basically yeah. says he's changed the handle about 10 times and he's changed the, uh, changed the uh, kind of whiskers on the bottom about eight times. So it's not the same sweeping brush. How, how much of that hat was repaired and how much of it was the original one? Was it, was it all still there? Well, uh, and I love that, uh, that Trigger scene, by the way. I love Fools and Horses. I just, I, I, that makes me think of my hat every time I see it. So <laughs> you, you're dead right. No, I had the hat was given to me my very first day as a professional cricketer in 1982. And it did get, uh, I had it every, um, I played every first class match with it, apart from a short spell in the West Indies with England, but we weren't going to that because they made me change my hat a little, uh, for a few games. But that's a, that's a podcast on its own, so we won't go into detail on that. But I had it right through all my career, and it had to be rebuilt a few times, I agree. And I did burn it in, a, in an oven in the West Indies. I was trying to starch the brim, and I put it in this oven, and um, basically it, it sort of, top part of it disintegrated so I've had to rebuild it over the years and I, what I used to rebuild it well I didn't actually do it myself my wife was the only person allowed to touch it and at the end of every season um, it would be washed and we'd be, it would have to be stuck in the uh, the airing cupboard to dry over a biscuit jar two tea towels and the tea cosy That's a, that was the size of my head that kept it the same size and we starched it um, but the repairs to the actual material I used my old coach at Gloucestershire we played for Gloucestershire in the 50s, a guy called Graham Wiltshire, no longer with us. Um, he was the first team coach at Gloucester when I was a, when I was a youngster. And um, he, I used to badger him every winter to go up into his loft and get out his old flannels and his old... Because uh, the, the, the material in those days was, it was like a nice cotton. Uh, the material these days is all plasticky poly, polyester stuff. That, that, that's never, that would never do for the hat. So he would, use the, he would have to go up to his loft every winter or every other winter, and cut out a piece of uh, old white flannel for me, which my wife had stitched back onto the hat. I hope a good job he never got a recall or uh, uh, come back to play, because he probably had one, one trouser short on one side, one, you know, short leg on one side and long on the other. His, his trousers used to be in bits, but without Graham Wiltshire, I don't think the hat would have survived. But you can still um, see the original badge on the inside, actually, from that first outboard. So most of it is still, that was, is still there, and it, it was still there. And is it in private place somewhere? You, you, I would imagine you treasured it and kept it. I always keep it in a safe place because I have a panic attack if I don't know where it is. Um, <laughs> and I never used to leave my hat on the ground. Uh, if we, you know, if we, even if we were playing away, I'd put them in my bag and I'd go back to the hotel 
with my hat and my gloves. They never, they never ever stayed at the ground. <clears throat> um, all my is and everything I used to take back with me. And if we were on a flight or we were on tour, they would come into the cabin of the uh, aircraft with me. You know, I'd be in my hand luggage. They wouldn't go down into the into the hold. They'd have to be with me. So I had my gloves, my, well, two pairs over 20 odd years, basically, uh, more or less. And they used to, you know, they, I've got a bit. They used, to, I didn't, I didn't, I never noticed because I got immune to it. But they did used to smell a little bit in the inner. So on a flight, I used to get weird looks from people because they, this, from the smell coming from underneath my seat. Um, was my gloves and my, my inners and my hat. So uh, I, the hat's always in a safe place. I never, I know, I know where it is 24 hours a day. In changing times like these, make a change yourself. Buy your own home. Still living with parents or renting? Why not buy your first property? Mortgage rates are lower than ever. Speak to Blue Crocodile. Blue Crocodile? Yeah, Blue Crocodile. They'll get you the right first time buy a deal by searching the market for the most competitive option for you. They don't bite, they're just straight talking people like me. Give them a bell or go online. Blue Crocodile. Paul Smith, the former Warwickshire All-Rounder, has been on the Cricket Badger podcast a couple of times now. He first appeared in January and he came back on in October. His book, Wasted? Question mark. A terrific read. Get it if you can. But the word wasted in that title has more than one meaning. And I asked Paul in October whether he felt he'd got the most out of his career, whether he felt it had been a little bit too short. Here's what he had to say. You know, sort of from such a young age to play that amount of cricket. I mean, you know... I think you either burn out, you know, you, you, you either get worked out and you, and you don't have a long career. But if you do have a long career, your enthusiasm for it and you also have the physical and the mental aspect of it that's often overlooked. Um, I think you have a certain amount of juice in the tank. And it's certainly with me, by the time I was, you know, sort of early 30s, I'd, I'd actually achieved what I set out to do. So, you know, that's quite difficult. And, and, there are obvious examples in other walks of life, you know, as to why, I don't know, why would a lead singer walk, walk out of a, of a multi-platinum album band, you know, and people say you're, you're mad. But if you don't want to do it anymore, then you, know, you can kiss the band goodbye, you walk. Um, and no one plays forever, no matter what you do. Uh, so I think I'd, I'd given it everything that I possibly could. And, and if you feel that, then you haven't wasted your career. You've actually achieved a lot more than what I think. In hindsight, you know, you, you achieve a lot. Um, so, you know, I never thought I was going to play till I was 44, like Dennis Amos, or 47, like Norman Gifford. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. Uh, I think I'd be a caricature of what I, you know, what I was when I when I really set out on that journey. But did cricket end on your terms? That I read a piece the other day about you, um, the Guardian. It was a review of uh, of your book, and I'll, I'll read you that paragraph. By 1997, however, he was no player at all. After descending into drug addiction, he was banned for 22 months for bringing the game into disrepute. And then there's a quote from you. The time I started taking drugs to the time I knew I was finished as a player took just 18 months. I was fingered and I covered for a lot of other people. If you take drugs, you've got an issue that needs to be addressed. It doesn't make you a bad person. I'm tinged with that, but I don't give a monkeys what people think of me. What I was was trying to get to there was that you know, your, your career from outside, and I've spoken to you a lot, but I don't know you particularly well, it looked like it finished because of the drug addiction and because of, uh, of that kind of stuff, rather than it being on your terms. Well, I don't think you ever finished really on your own terms. You know, even those that, you know, retire quietly, someone's probably had a word in their ear. Do you ever finish on your own terms? I think at that time, you know, it was, uh, it was a hugely emotional time of life. 
because we played a huge amount of cricket that was um, very taxing mentally and physically, um, a lot of pressure. Uh, and then you, and, and that's just what you do for a living, you know. Uh, there were other things that were going on. Mm. So <laughs> regarding what my quote was there, apart from the fact that I couldn't give the monkeys what people think of me, uh, I would probably stand by most of what Paul Weaver quoted me on. Yeah, I was, I mean, that was going to be my follow-up question, was the bit about not caring what people think of you. I mean, in my experience, and I've been exactly the same, when, when people say that, they don't mean it. Well, I think that if you, if, you, if you walk around worrying what other people think, it will hinder you in many ways. <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think that it's about being, um, about being realistic. You know, people, there's all sorts of reasons why people like people. And there's all sorts of reasons why people don't like people. Um, it, it doesn't to say that it doesn't to say that it doesn't worry me. I think that you shouldn't look for bad in people, and you know there's there's no perfect human. So uh, uh, you know a lot of people could say a lot of things about a lot of people, and you could also the people who criticise could also get slated, you know, because of what sort of characters they are themselves. You know, some of them are pretty well known and sit on um, breakfast television every you know every morning. I met Brad Hogg when I was doing some work out in Abu Dhabi on the Emirates T20 a couple of years ago, and he was really good company. And he came on the podcast in May to answer the Cricket Badger 20 questions. And the Cricket Badger podcast, we have a laugh, we have jokes, we talk about the good times in people's careers, but we also tackle the serious stuff too. And Brad has had a few struggles in his time. Mental health are a big thing in cricket and big thing in life, especially this year. And Brad Hogg came very close to ending it all. He now does uh, a bit of work around mental health to encourage other people to get through the dark times. But here's Brad talking about a moment where he was struggling to see through the fog. You, you talk about driving, was it to Fremantle um, four times and actually seriously considering swimming out there and if you didn't get back, it didn't really matter. You, was, you were kind of close to the edge. Yeah, well, yeah, well, going back to where I was writing about Moody and um, Hados earlier, I was going to bring the point up then, actually. I'm glad you did. Uh, yeah, I, w- I went through that phase. It was a tough phase because basically I gave about cricket uh, the dream of playing the Ashes, you know, that, w- that would have been the icing on the cake for me uh, because that's what you strive to do. You, you just want to be part of that Ashes tour to England and it was there. It was in my grasp and I, I didn't get there and uh, the thing that I gave it up for was my family and then all of a sudden, yeah, just it wasn't happening and uh, we separated and, uh, you know, all I could see was just everything that I'd worked for just uh, taken away from me and I was thinking uh, I was in a negative phase there and I was going out uh, quite regularly and when I was out, everyone thought I was uh, pretty happy and uh, it was one night I'd come home from Perth. I was in the cab. My brother was in the back with his girlfriend. We are going back to my parents' house where my car was. I was talking to the Indian cabbie, uh, cab driver that we had and we are talking about cricket and then we got in a bit of a uh, little bit of an argument. Uh, I think it was about uh, well, obviously, to do something with uh, Indian cricket and Australian cricket. Uh, I got out of the cab. My brother uh, calmed it down. Uh, and I will point out that I, did, I rang the cab company the next day to try and apologise uh, to the cab driver, but they uh, they couldn't get a hold of him, so they passed on the, uh, my message. But I still would prefer to uh, apologise to him face-to-face, but uh, that happened. Went inside, had an argument with mum and dad, got in my car, drove home, which is about... 10 minutes from where they live, and I shouldn't have been driving, by the way. I don't want to advertise it, but I got home, and I went into the bathroom, 
I was absolutely fuming with myself. Then I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you've got to change your ways. And I walked back out of the bathroom, knock on the door. It was my dad. I said, Dad, I'm okay. I'll come and see you tomorrow. Apologize to mum, please. And then I walked into my office and wrote on the board where I wanted my life to go uh, from now. And it was amazing. Within a week later, uh, within a week, I was getting phone calls for job uh, job offers. So just that change of mindset just changed my life. And then I met my wife now, um, who is really my backbone and encouraged me to get back into cricket. And that, that was just to go back and play great cricket. There was nothing there to uh, go back and play for Australia or the Perth Scorchers or anything like that. It was just to go out and uh, get back into something that I loved, to, just to uh, keep my mind fresh. And, you know, it's uh, it's so funny uh, because I do a lot of lifeline now. I look back at that time and, I, you know, you know it's a sad time. But I go, I go and talk to people now in public. The first time I, I talked, it was I felt embarrassed, like the whole crowd just – stopped when I went through that story and then afterwards everyone just came up to me with their own story so I'm glad that it can help other people now and just my motto now is if you go through a um, tough patch you can't talk to anyone uh, we've got Lifeline here where you can ring up and they've got people that talk to you and uh, just help you get through a day to make tomorrow uh, a better day so that's my motto now going forward so anyone there that is listening here and there's a lot of cricketers that are committed suicide uh, over in England as well that um, we don't want to see that continuing and, we, and with what's going on now it's even more prevalent so speak to someone please because uh, you know every, everyone's going through a tough time and we've got to help each other out Badges are furry creatures. 85% of women badges think bad grooming is a major turn-off. 80% of women badges think men should trim below the belt. 89% of men think good grooming is essential to the professional success. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. Get on there, manscaped.com. Check out their great range of male grooming accessories. Hygiene, appearance, attractiveness, confidence. Simply go to manscaped.com, quote the discount code BADGER. You get 20% off, you get free shipping, and you get some seriously quality equipment. Manscaped.com, together we save balls. Brad Hogg. I also met Waka Yunis and he came on in June just ahead of Pakistan's tour of England and one of the things I wanted to know from Waka as a player of limited ability myself who never played in the professional game who has marvelled at some of the fast bowlers through the years what does it feel like to be able to bowl at nearly 100 miles an hour to bowl those balls that make the best batsmen in the world rush their shots and get out here's Waka's answer it is hard to explain it in words honestly it is just a uh... That's the feeling you play for, to be very honest. It's not the money, it's not the fame, it's, it's just that that particular uh, moment. That, that, that's what you play for because you're in control and you're on top of your game and, and, and you know that you're going to get that batsman and you know you can do things the way you want. And uh, I feel that uh, that, is, that is probably the best feeling. It's, it's hard to explain. And how much do you miss that when, once you've retired? And you're obviously never going to experience that again ever, are you? Mm. How much do you miss that? Uh, look, I, I, I just I get frustrated at times. I don't miss it because my body is, is so tired now and, and <laughs> you know, it aches so much in the morning. So I don't really miss it. But 
but it frustrates me sometimes because when I see some uh, bowlers, when they have gotten things in control and they don't really make full use of it, and that really frustrates me sometimes. And you, you've also done, you, you, you've done your media work and you're in coaching as well. Do, do you mm. feel that those kind of feelings that you have, that frustration and everything, do you, are you able to challenge that quite well into coaching? Can you see a, a young fastball then you're able to point him in the right direction because of your own experiences? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, when I when I'm coaching or when I go back into uh, when when I go back into talking to these kids, I I put myself in in their shoes and 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 think how what they're thinking and and try to guide them through that rather than you know pushing uh, or you should do this or that and that's not right or wrong. There's no such thing right or wrong. It's just that how you do things, how you how you uh, handle things, and 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 that's sometimes as I said, it, it gets frustrating. Uh, but it, it gets very pleasing when they when they get it right also. My former buddy from Yorkshire days, when he was the batting coach at Yorkshire and I was the media manager there, he came on in April, Kevin Sharp, has had plenty of success at Worcestershire since he left the White Rose County. We talked about his early days at Yorkshire and his first trip into the Yorkshire dressing room when he encountered a certain Jeffrey Boycott. I don't think it ever fazed me been around Jeff or, I mean... Boyk sent me home on my first day as a, as a young professional. Do you know that? No. Yeah. Well, as I walked, when I walked into the dressing room at, at Headingley in the old dressing room on my first day, I walked in with my cricket bag and a pair of jeans and a t-shirt on. The first guy I walked into was a chap called Jeffrey Boycott, and he looked at me and he said, uh, "Oh," he said, uh, "What's your name?" I said, "Great, Kevin." Kevin Sharp, he says, all right, he says, he says, look, he says, just go put your bag over there in that corner, go home and put some decent clothes on. <laughs> he said, have you got here today? I says, well, I says, I'll just come on the bus. I only live at Meanwood up the road. He says, right, well, go get back on that bus and put some decent clothes on and come back. And so I went home on the bus and my mum was in the kitchen and she said what are you doing and i told her i've been sent home to put some clothes on so i went back in a pair of trousers an open neck shirt and a jacket and i walked back in the dressing room and it was just getting near lunchtime then so i'd missed the whole morning session and he looked at me and he said that's better he said boycott pleased to meet you <laughs> so that was my first day as a professional cricketer got sent home by the great man but you know i was never kind of felt with jeff i mean jeff was you know very obviously very forthright and obviously opinionated and very blunt in many ways, but obviously spoke fantastic sense and knowledge about the game. But I travelled with him for a lot when I was younger, when I first sort of I passed my driving test. Lived in, in Durkin, near where he lived in Woolley, and we used to travel a lot together to games. I used to drive his BMW, which I liked doing. And I was never really phased by him. He was helpful to me in the winters when I... Stopped going abroad. He helped me fix up some coaching and things like that so I could earn a few quid. So, no, not really intimidated or first, but I'm sure, I mean, I know there were, were plenty of players who would have been. We might as well stay on the same theme, haven't we? Because Jeffrey Boycott, Sir Jeffrey, as he is now, came onto the Cricket Badger podcast in September. Fantastic interview he gave me, available in two parts, as are all of these interviews still available on the Cricket Badger podcast platform, whatever platform you listen to on. If you like some of these snippets, then you can find the full interviews still there, available to listen to. But when Sir Jeffrey came on the podcast, we talked about a lot 
lot of different things. But the one thing that I think he'll be remembered for, and I think he hopes he'll be remembered for, is that day at Headingley where he raised both arms to the sky, celebrating his 100th hundred. When I die, the lasting memory will be my 100th hundred at Headingley. I wasn't the greatest batsman that ever lived, not by light years. And yet nobody in the history of the game had ever made 100 hundreds and done it in a test match. And the media were all going mad about I was 99 after getting my 98th against Australia at Nottingham in my comeback test. Then I think with three days off and I got 100 for Yorkshire against a rain ruin match uh, at Edgebaston against Warwickshire. Then they were all saying, ah, oh, he's going to get his 100 as, as if just like that you can get 100. <laughs> Not easy to come by any time. <laughs> then the extra pressure of England-Australia, test match, headingly, home ground, big crowd, but they were all believing I was going to get my 100. And, well, I did. Um, I was so wound up the night before. Oh, I knew the pressure and everything. My Rachel then came over to relax me, and she was there at the match. And she was actually sitting down by the rugby stand there at Headingley, the old rugby stand. When I hit it straightish, passed the ball on the straightish on side, and it went near where she was sitting. And later, when I was drinking champagne and being interviewed on the balcony, we found out a long time later, didn't realize it, there was a photograph with me raising a glass of champagne with a stump in the other hand. We took some photographs for our house we had built in Cape Town in 2005, I think it was, first Christmas there. So from 77 to 2005, and she got some photographs and she said, oh, I was there that day. I should have been there. I was with the crowd outside the pavilion. And when we looked, you could see her in the crowd wow. right under my elbow where I'm lifting this champagne glass. Marvellous. That's perfect symmetry, that, isn't it? I mean, it's a boy's own tale, that, to do it at Headingley and everything like that. I've spoken to a lot of players, Geoffrey, and they say they can remember certain things in their career crystal clear. Can you remember that, that on-drive that went past Graham Roop and hit the boundary? Can you remember that clear as day? Yeah, I can remember what I was thinking as well. Um, Rachel told me afterwards that, oh, I was on 80-some a long time and everybody was worried. I said, well, I wasn't worried. <laughs> I was only nervous when I was on naught or the first 20 runs I had to make. Once I was in, I I didn't believe in the nervous 90s. I thought, I better to get 90-odd runs. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. Unless he bowls me a magic ball, it's just a question of me keeping cool, waiting for the right ball, put it away. And I knew he was going to bowl me a bouncer and test me because he, he bowled medium, medium, steady. They couldn't get me out, so they tried Greg Chappell. He was the captain, just a couple of overs, see if you do some at daft. And I knew he was going to bounce me, which was a quicker ball he bowled. So I'd suck you out, so I let that go. I wasn't going to try driving through extra cover because I knew he just swung it out, I might nick it. I'd just wait for the right ball. I actually knew I was going to hit it before I did. I, once it left his hand, I think it pitched around off stump just outside, but the length was right. But as soon as he let it go, I knew I was going to hit it before I hit it. And I just took it from outside to in to hit it straight past the wickets. And as soon as I hit it, you see my arm go up. I know it's gone. It doesn't happen often, that type of thing, where you're so in the zone that you know precisely what you're going to do before you do it. But that was a magical moment where I did know exactly what I was going to do and was able to do it. So it was a magical time. I've never been in that zone, Geoffrey. never ever. Well, I've done it a few times like that, but it, it, it is a few. And, and, and I can tell you, 
it is what you practice for all those years. You practice years and years so that you can play at the highest level and you can do it when it matters, under pressure, under the most extreme moments when it's so important. And that's what you practice for. And then the mental side is the key as well, that you, you practice your concentration, your patience, to hold it all together when you're being put under such severe pressure. And purely is that what you practice for. And then when you're in the 90s, for me, it's not a problem. I was always amazed that I got out in the 90s sometimes because I felt that is the easier time. The hard time is when you're on north, first 10, 15, 20 runs. And you're right in the, f- the first part of your answer, though. When, when people look back in 100 years, say, and they're talking about the, the greats of yesteryear, it'll be those images at Headingley that you are in the books for, isn't it? That, you know, raising your back, your two so. arms to the air. Yeah, I hope so. Former Warwickshire all-rounder Dougie Brown came onto the podcast in July. Dougie, now out there in the UAE, setting up a new coaching business. Hopefully, I haven't spoken to him since, but hopefully that's going okay, despite the fact that COVID's impacted on a lot of businesses around the globe. Just before I spoke to Dougie, I listened to the Tuffers and Vaughan show and heard Phil Tufnell telling a tale about an England training camp that involved him and Dougie Brown. So I asked Dougie to give his side of the same story. Quite a funny one. Here's Dougie Brown from July. And my memories of a lot of pre-season trips when you were with Warwickshire and I remember you running around a hotel in Barbados training with Ashley Giles. Um, I've just kind of every, every single memory of coming into contact with you at some stage, I see you running around doing something physical. There was a, a story that Phil Tufnell told on Radio 5 um, Live on his show with Vaughan the other night where he said that on one of, he was playing himself down, but he was on the bike on an exercise bike on an England trip. And you ran past him. He was on his bike and you ran past him because you were the fittest human being that he'd ever ever seen, I think, Phil Tufnell. <laughs> the hilarious thing about that was that we, so we were in um, a place called Club La Santa in Lanzarote. On a, on a, it was like a, bringing every single England player together. It was about 50 cricketers who were all on, Eng, on the England programme, under-19s, A-team, one-day squad, uh, test squad. We were all there. Uh, and Bumble was, was coach and all the support staff. We were all there. Basically, we'd had a, a really good week. It had been really hard. Uh, and it sort of culminated, and we were doing this, this triathlon. And the way they had pitched it was they, they went with they went in order. So everybody was ranked, you know, 1 to 50, if you like. And, and I was sort of up at the top, and, and tough as wasn't. He was down the bottom. <laughs> so I was, I was sort of put together with him. And we had to do a swim and then a, a cycle and then a run. But we all had to do every bit of it. But one person could do more of it. For argument's sake, if I had to swim 200 metres, you know, I could swim 50 metres and, and my partner could do 150 metres. But you had to cover the distance yeah. together. Okay, And so we, we strategised the night before um, in the bar, as you do, um, and everybody else was doing the same sort of thing because, we, you know, it was a bit of fun, but you wanted to compete. You wanted to be as, as good as you can and try and work out the right strategy. And Tuffer said he was a really good, um, really good swimmer. He had swum for the school and all that sort of stuff. And, I was like, okay, well, you can do a bit more than that than me, and I'll do the running and the bike. And we had two bikes, so it was a mountain bike and a road bike. And so couples had the road bike because you could go a bit quicker. And the bit I was doing, I said, well, I'll do the majority of the running and so on and so forth. Anyway, we devised a strategy. We were doing loops. It was like a 10-kilometer loop. And in the end, I had to do something like 15 kilometers running. And I hadn't seen after after he dived into the swimming pool and then set off doing breaststroke, I was like, I think we might have 
got this a bit wrong. So he's doing <laughs> his breaststroke, hickeying the other lane. He's doing, you know, he's like chewing the water up, up and down, tumble turns and all that sort of stick, all, all that sort of stuff. And in the end, there was a great big bit of rock. I was blowing hard and it was really hot as well. And uh, I ran past this rock and there was like a, and there was like smoke coming up from behind the rock and I saw a bike down on its side <laughs> and I actually stopped and looked in and, and there was toughers in there having a fag. <laughs> it looks like we're blowing it. I was like blowing it. I was, I was, we finished last and I was, I, 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 honestly, I'd never run as hard and cycled as hard as I'd ever done over the course of that sort of hour and a half period. It was unbelievable. Um, and we, yeah, we rocked up finishing last. It was very funny. I take it you've not entered another triathlon with Phil Tufnell since. <laughs> no, no, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't knock. Uh, yeah, I would. I would. I would do it again. I would do it. With, I'm sure I'd back him this time. It's that Badger style. There we go then, that's the end of part one of the Christmas special of the Cricket Badger podcast. And you know what to do, you press stop on this part one, you turn over to part two on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on, and you find part two and press play. I'll see you there. Podcast Network.